0: Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, a licensed professional counselor with over a decade
1: of experience. And this is Trisha. and lately I've been having collie wobbles. Collie wobbles? That sounds serious. It's like anxiety, like nervous tummy. Oh, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, I've got, you know, I've got a trip coming up, and it's a really long flight, and I was sort of a victim of fraud this week and it's just been a big whatever I've not been sleeping very well and I'm I'm mad at myself because I was the stupid one you just made a mistake people do that (sighs) but I can understand why you're stressed that sounds very stressful I'm just hoping that it all works out the way that sometimes life does right I hope so yes so these collie wobbles will go away I hope that they go away very soon thank you like Courtney said, welcome to Addicted to Murder. And I'm going to do the question before we introduce the new case. All right, fire away. Courtney, if you could be any animal, real or imagined, what would you be? Ooh, real or imagined? I mean, they could be real in a different realm. It's true. That's a good question. Hmm. i think i would be like some sort of pegasus dude i was gonna say pegasus now i have to change my answer
0: no we could have the same answer no
1: go ahead tell us why you like want to be a pegasus
0: well because then you've got lots of options because like you're a horse which is cool already Mm -hmm. so you can like run and jump and do horse things but then you have wings Mm -hmm. so also you could fly and
1: that's pretty awesome It is, and that's, and then I also really enjoyed Rainbow Bright, and I know that Starlight was a unicorn, I think, but Stormy's horse was a pegasus, I think.
0: I think in some of those, there were, like, unicorn pegasuses.
1: That would be cool. Mm -hmm. I guess I will choose a mermaid. Is that really an animal? um, It's, like, part fish. I suppose, but it's also part human. Um, we're, hu- we're animals. I guess. Yeah. That's true. So I would, I mean, I've always kind of wanted to be a mermaid. I actually follow Merman Andrew on TikTok, and he's amazing. I just recommend anyone who likes to watch um, Merman swim, Merman Andrew. Shout out to him. So anyways, I'd get one of those fake tails, but they're mm-hmm. really expensive. They are really expensive. But, you know, if I had one, I'd totally use it. Mm-hmm. in front of people even. I wouldn't care. I wouldn't give a fuck. That's all right. I think you can get just like blankets that are like... I have one. You do? I do. That's awesome. It's green. But... Well, all right. that was my question. That was a good question. Thank I like you. It. Um, Courtney picked two days person and yeah. she'll give us a little intro before we start in on it.
0: Yeah, so today we are talking about a serial killer that I had never heard of before and I doubt many people have um, as there was literally only one source that I found with any information about him Um, and that was the book it's called To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin so the vast majority of the information um, today came from that book Um, and it was interesting also because he was never charged or convicted of his crimes because he was killed during the commission of his last one. So Vigilante today. Justice there. Kind of, yeah. I so. mean I don't know, but <laughs> Right. So um his name is Wayne Nance and um aka the Missoula Mauler.
1: Which I think as far as the moniker goes, that's kind of a cool one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not that we condone any of the reasons these people get these
0: names of course he was also known as like the baby faced killer but oh i feel mm-hmm. like are there other baby faced killers? there are definitely oh, other okay. baby faced killers i feel like i've
1: heard of that but i've not heard of the missoula mauler before mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> right yeah so this is just going to be kind of one long episode there wasn't quite enough information i think to drag it out into two um, we don't
1: drag out
0: or to you know be able to <laughs> fill two spots should i say um, so bear with us. This is a a one and done kind of killer.
1: yeah, I mean, typically, I don't know if you guys care, but we try to keep it around thirty forty minutes because that's kind of like the ride to work type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and our research showed that that was the amount of time people like to listen to podcasts. So that's why sometimes our stuff or a lot of times our stuff is split up into multiple parts is for your
0: listening pleasure. right. So. so bear with us. This one will be a little bit longer,
1: but it's pretty interesting. Okay, so here we go. Wayne Nance was born on October 18, 1955, in Clinton, Montana, to his parents, George and Charlene. He was the second of four children, with an older sister, Desiree, a younger brother, William, and a younger sister, Veda. Finances were always tight for the Nance family, with George working as a truck driver and Charlene as a waitress. Throughout Wayne's childhood, the family lived in a few different trailer parks in the small towns located just outside of Missoula. With both parents working, Wayne and his siblings were Latchkey kids and wandered and played in the neighborhood and nearby woods without much direction or supervision. So when I was a kid, I went to a program called Latchkey. And then, I don't know, but I wasn't a Latchkey kid.
0: No, because Latchkey kid just
1: basically means that they go home. you go home before your parents get home from work and you're home alone for a while. Yeah, it was called Latchkey until I think maybe people thought that was a bad name for it and then they changed it to creative care. Probably. (laughs) But, okay, anyways. From an early age, Wayne was described as different, quote, by his peers and the other parents in the neighborhood. He was kind of a loner, and when he did play with other kids, they often left in tears and accused Wayne of being mean. He liked to jump out and scare kids and generally played rough. When he was eight years old, a girl on his school bus accidentally dropped her glasses and they slid down the floor to where Wayne was sitting. She asked him to give them back and was relieved that they hadn't been scratched. But instead, Wayne held them up and deliberately broke the frames in half before tossing them back. When the girl's dad approached Wayne's father, George, um, George defended Wayne and said, quote, boys will be boys. This would generally be his approach to all of the trouble that Wayne got into. So, Courtney, when a parent defends, like, reprehensible behavior in their children, I'm assuming that the kid just takes that and runs with it. So, like, if their parents don't discipline them, then who will? Can this type of parenting lead to a disorder down the road, like oppositional defiant disorder, perhaps? Um, Just describe what that is, if so.
0: Yeah. So children need help to build structure and morals, even if they fight against that structure. Um, So when a parent makes excuses for a child's behavior, it teaches the child that there are no consequences for their actions and that this behavior is morally acceptable. And so while there might be some, you know, naturally occurring consequences for things like being mean to your peers, such as, you know, other kids not wanting to play with you anymore, ultimately kids are looking to the adults in their lives to kind of set the tone um, for this. And so if there are no rules and there's no consequences for harmful behaviors, it can definitely set the stage for future mental health and, like, social concerns, um, including oppositional defiant disorder and things like narcissistic traits yeah. and difficulty having empathy or accepting responsibility kind of for your actions later in life, um, and um you know, if a child is already displaying some signs of antisocial behavior, it can create an environment that just kind of allows that to flourish.
1: Yeah, it's like a perfect breeding ground for that. Exactly. Um, okay, so this is a trigger warning because there's some animal abuse coming up. So just so you all know, in December of that year, a neighbor observed Wayne walking around outside There was a firebox in the trailer park where everyone disposed of their trash, and it was burning pretty much constantly. A stray cat and her kittens would sometimes sleep on the open door to the top of the firebox, or on the top of the firebox to stay warm. And this neighbor watched in horror as Wayne stopped the box and then took the lid where the kittens were sleeping and tipped it up so the kittens slid into the fire, and then he closed it. Later, former friends and acquaintances reported that they heard or saw Wayne torturing cats by hanging them with clotheslines or skinning them alive. Again, Wayne had no consequences for her actions other than being yelled at by his mom. Courtney, this is very, very disturbing behavior. Unlike some of the others we studied, it looks as though a parent knew what he was doing as far as like the torturing animals goes. How do you treat a person who is displaying this type of behavior? if a child is caught during his triad years, as I'm calling this, is there hope to help them out of that? So if a parent is actually paying
0: attention and taking this level of cruelty to animals seriously, especially if caught at a young age as this, like under 10 years old, um, then I do think there is some hope. You know, if a young Wayne had been brought into my therapy office, the first thing I would want to address is, parenting, particularly increasing supervision. Um, And then with Wayne, you know, therapy could work on building empathy, improving social skills, and finding safe replacement behaviors um, to kind of express his anger or channel those kind of violent urges in a less destructive way. Um, So some examples of, like, replacement behaviors might be, like, boxing or martial arts or Cooking, working with, like, woodworking, kind of use some of the similar tools, but in a productive way. Um, and it's not a guarantee that he wouldn't still develop into a serial killer, you know, if you were, in fact, just a psychopath. Um, but it couldn't hurt.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you can catch them earlier enough to almost train them um, to, when they have these urges, to find a different outlet, then maybe it will become... Like a behavior to do that. Right. Exactly. Like a learned behavior or whatever. Right. If it's
0: when I feel like hurting something, mm-hmm.
1: instead I go and like chop down a tree. hmm Okay. So at school, Wayne was noticed for being very intelligent and academically gifted. He got very good grades. He read a lot of books and was looked up to by some of the other kids because he, quote, knew things that they wanted to know. He was known for bringing things like live snakes into class for show and tell, and that was just to get a reaction out of his classmates. His good school performance also helped him avoid any major consequences for his bullying and fighting at school, although he was banned from being, uh, sorry, from riding the school bus in the fourth grade for fighting. Well, on December 14th, 1968, Wayne's now 13 years old, his father, George, was arrested for robbing a gas station with a gun. Okay, armed robbery. Not cool. Nope. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Wayne was now a teenager, and as he started high school, things seemed to improve slightly. He was very strong and fast, but he wasn't really athletically inclined. He was starting to be known as a friendly and gregarious guy whose personality matched the softness of his appearance with curly red hair, pale skin, and freckles. The baby face. But by his junior year, Wayne started to change again. He became even more of a loner and began learning and obsessing about the occult and all things in the satanistic area. He talked a lot of witchcraft and sorcery, different Viking legends, and claimed to have mystical powers. He even tried to claim that his birthday was on Halloween, not October 18th. One night, Wayne and a friend stole some parade floats from the school and lit them on fire in what he described as a mock Viking funeral. Look, here's another part of that triad emerging... He was also drawing very violent and disturbing images. He always carried a knife on him and joked about using a hypodermic needle he found to stab someone. He even used a wire clothes hanger to brand his arm with the pentagram. During one hangout session, Wayne's friend Bill remembers him saying, I think I'm going to kill someone before I turn 19. You know, as one does. Uh, At the time, Bill just lumped it in with all the other stuff that Wayne said, like, you know, him being a warlock and all that. And he didn't pay much attention to it. At the time, in the early 70s, the occult and witchcraft kind of stuff was pretty popular in the counterculture of movements. I think that's kind of like when the Ouija boards and stuff were super popular, too. Yep, definitely. Yeah. Um, so most people just didn't pay attention to what, you know, or care what Wayne was doing. He was still going to school, taking honors classes, and getting good grades. So, you know, how bad could it really be? So, Courtney, I live right near Thurston High School, or I did when the, you know, The shooting happened. So I was a junior when that shooting did happen. And I remember being in choir class when the announcement came over the loudspeaker that a shooting occurred at one of our sister schools. And Kip Kinkle apparently talked a lot about torturing animals and building bombs and wanting to kill people. And no one really took him seriously. And then look what happened. Have you worked with kids who have expressed this kind of thing? And if so, what have you done?
0: You know, I have worked with a few kids or teens who have had these kind of urges and behaviors. Um, I have kind of one that comes to mind in particular, um, who was about 12 years old when I worked with them um, and had exhibited some animal cruelty and fire setting already. Um, But the most concerning thing to me in that case was some drawings that they made um, that they described as being a compound where they would live with their mother and kill everyone who tried to come close with machine guns. In that case, you know, I worked with the family to increase supervision and remove access to any sort of weapons, including things like kitchen knives and yard tools and all of that, um, and then worked with this child on you know, coping skills for anger and for trauma that they'd experienced. Um, but ultimately, they required more intensive care than I was able to provide at the outpatient level, which is where I was working at the time. Um, so I ended up referring them to a higher level of care. And I'm not really sure what happened to them after that, but this client um, is an adult now. So I'm kind of interested to see where they
1: turned up. How old were they when, Do you did you say that already? How old they were when they saw you? Around 12. Around 12. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, I mean, that's got to be I don't know. As a therapist, I guess maybe it's sort of like a police officer where at first things shock you, but then if you see them enough, you're kind of like, yeah, that happens. Like, to me, that Mm -hmm. sounds shocking, but maybe... Right. Yeah. And at the time, I was a pretty
0: brand new therapist, Mm -hmm. so um, I would probably approach things a little bit differently now if I was working with them Mm -hmm. um, and probably would have taken it even more seriously.
1: Yeah. Especially with all of the shootings that we've been having lately, it's... It almost right. seems like an epidemic. but Exactly. All right. Well, on Thursday, April 11th, 1974, the body of Donna Pound was found dead by her husband. His name was Harvey, and it was in the basement of their home. She had been bound, tortured, sexually assaulted, and then shot twice in the head. Upstairs in the bedroom, police found white clothes line pre-tied to each of the bed frames, mm-hmm. like it was ready to tie someone to the beds. And the lines in the master bedroom had been used and then cut. A witness described seeing a man in his 20s with red hair and a black duffel bag running into the woods away from the house. Initially, the police focused on the husband as the main suspect, as one does typically, but over time he was cleared. When they started to look elsewhere, they began to suspect that Wayne may have been involved. He lived just a few blocks away from the Pound family, and he went to school with their eldest daughter, And had been in the house before. He even matched the physical description given by the witness, except for the age, as Wayne was only 18 and was still a senior in high school. But he had skipped school that day and didn't have an alibi. The day after the murder, he was heard bragging at school about being a suspect, and his friend Bill reported that Wayne had been looking off as if in a trance. Then turned to him and said, It has been done. Quote, Before laughing. Wayne was questioned by the police and a search of his bedroom did find a black duff, duffel bag and a pair of underwear with blood stain, but the stain had been degraded by you know being washed so they weren't able to analyze it. Then Wayne passed a polygraph, denying any involvement. Two years later, in June of 1976, a grand jury was convened to explore possible charges, charges against Wayne or Donna's husband, Harvey, and both were called to testify, but no indictments were handed down due to lack of evidence. The case went cold and nobody was ever arrested or charged with Don's murder. So while well, I don't really get the bragging stuff these murderers do, but it just seems that they just desperately want to tell people about their crimes, you'd think they'd be smart enough to realize that it's incriminating.
0: You know, well, some see their murders as kind of a, a grand achievement that they're really proud of, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like a football quarterback bragging about throwing a touchdown pass, but Creepy and terrifying, and then throw in you know Wayne's still a teenager, and teenagers do some pretty dumb things because their brains aren't fully developed yet.
1: When I think about the the cases we've covered, I mean not everybody brags um, or goes back to the scene, um, and I I just kind of wonder if the ones that don't do that might be ones that don't have narcissistic tendency tendencies. Maybe I mean I'm I'm thinking in some people we haven't done yet like Jeffrey Dahmer mm-hmm. like you know, didn't do that. and Right, right.
0: Or we've got some that didn't brag about it until after they were
1: caught. True. Like, you know, Ted Bundy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for example. Charles Cullen never bragged about it. However, he did go back to the hospital every day. So maybe he got satisfaction from that. I don't know. He, was, don't know he was different. But. Yes. Okay. So after graduating high school in June of 1974, Wayne joined the Navy, so after basic training, he was sent to a special nuclear training program in Idaho. He did very well for about a year, but then got in trouble for being in possession of marijuana, LSD, and illegal knives. He was pushed by docking um, his pay and being demoted and ranked three times before the Navy decided to discharge him. And in November of 77, Wayne received a general discharge by reason of misconduct from the Navy and returned home from Montana. So not a good reason to be sent home, no. Have you noticed, Courtney, that many of the killers we've covered have done some sort of stint in the military? I have noticed this. um,
0: And honestly, it actually makes a lot of sense. You know, psychopaths, which I think it's fair to say the vast majority of serial killers are, uh, you know, they're drawn to careers where there's a lot of excitement and action, as well as opportunities for power and control. And so the military would seem like a perfect fit, right? And some psychopaths Thrive and rise through the ranks pretty quickly as they're seen as like clear-headed under pressure and things like that. However, you know, like many of the other killers we've talked about, Wayne's self-centeredness and lack of respect for authority and rules kind of resulted in a very short military career.
1: Yeah, it kind of goes, you know, one of either ways or one of two ways. It seems like they thrive in that institutionalized almost type-setting. Or they completely just can't handle being told to do. Yep. Yeah, it kind Pretty of much. seems how it's like a total you know, dichotomy between the two. But okay, so in July of 1978, 15-year-old Devonna Nelson disappeared in Seattle after running away from her mother's home. Around the time of her disappearance, Wayne happened to be in the Seattle area visiting a friend from the Navy. And in J- January 1980, the remains of a young woman were found dumped in the wilderness off I-90 about 15 miles outside of Missoula. At the time, she was known as Beaver Tail Hill Girl to the local police and was not identified as Devana until decades later. Was that through DNA? Do you know? Did the book say? Uh, Yes, it was through DNA. Okay. Wayne enrolled at University of Montana, and for the next couple of years, he took a wide variety of classes and generally maintained decent grades. On April 4th of 1980, Wayne's mother, Charlene, unfortunately died in a car accident that was suspected of being a suicide as she ran head-on into a tree going at high speeds. After her death, Wayne struggled at his college classes and eventually dropped out in the fall. He started working as a bouncer at a local dive bar called The Cabin, and he was about 25 at this time. In July of 1980, police responded to a disturbing call from a woman who in the book is referred to as Denise Tate, and we don't really know her name, She had returned home at the end of the day after having left the front door open to keep her trailer cool and went into her bedroom where she found white clothesline ropes tied to her bed frame. Creepy, and I would have gotten the fuck out of that house. Nobody was in the house, so she just discarded the ropes and locked her doors. I I would have, I don't know, whatever. Captain Weatherman, who was one of the main detectives in the area, that's funny, I was thinking it was like a superhero. Oh, (laughs) no. Real name. (laughs) So just so you know, um, I didn't get a chance to read this book, so I'm learning with you guys for sure on this one. Captain Weatherman, who was one of the main detectives in the area, immediately was reminded of the crime scene from Donna Pound's murder. He also thought about Wayne, although at the time he was unaware that Wayne was back living in the area. In February of '82, Wayne got hired on in the warehouse as a delivery driver for Conlin Furniture in Missoula. It was there that he met Chris Wells. Chris was a girl. Took me a minute to figure that out. The manager of the store, um, and he and she would later become very important to him. Wayne was a hard worker, was efficient at his job, and generally was well liked by his coworkers, although he was still considered a little odd. He was known to have mood swings and get intensely angry at times, and he was very possessive of the knives he wore on his belt. But he also was very kind and thoughtful and was known for never forgetting a birthday or an anniversary and always having a card or a small gift. He was particularly focused on the female sales staff and would often bring small trinkets or flowers to them for no particular reason. It did make some of them uncomfortable, but they thought of him as like a harmless guy with, you know, maybe a slightly slightly immature crush, you know, Courtney, um, do you think that Wayne did this stuff? Cause you know, he kind of did stuff like that in high school too, like buddy, buddy stuff to cover up like his true personality. Or do you think, what do you think is going on right there with the gifts and the, mm-hmm. you know, do you think anything?
0: Yeah, I think, um, we'll see a little bit later that sometimes his thoughts and attention, especially towards women, um, could be kind of on the obsessive side. Mm, okay. um, he very much wanted to get with women,
1: and you know, okay. So he was—he had an end game in mind with us, like he did. Yeah, of, mm-hmm. trying to get them to maybe do whatever with him later on by by giving them gifts and stuff. Right. Okay. So on April twenty seventh, nineteen eighty three, a woman known as Janet Wicker was attacked in her apartment after getting home from work. A man in a mask had broken in through a window, grabbed her from behind as she came in the front door and said he needed money. She screamed and tried to fight him off until he pulled out a knife and threatened to stab her. Using the knife, he walked her upstairs to the bedroom. At this point, the front door opened and Janet's husband arrived home. So the masked man fled through the open, excuse me, the open bedroom window and into the night. He was gone by the time police arrived there and there was no physical evidence. Later, a hand-drawn map of the apartment complex and the Wickers' apartment layout was found in Wayne's personal belongings. Man, oh man. In August of 1984, Wayne was still living outside of Missoula with his father, working at Conlon still, and moonlighting as a bouncer at the cabin. One night, while he was bouncing, he saw a young woman being dropped off by a trucker at the top, um, or at the stop across the street. She introduced herself as Robin, and Wayne invited her in and bought her a drink and a meal. He then invited her to come back to his place for the night. Robin ended up staying with Wayne for a few weeks, and they had quite the sexual relationship. Although, he did not bring her out in public, as he had a different girlfriend named Joni. Joni was 18, Wayne was 29, and she was smitten with his charm and attention, but she was thinking about marriage and not sex. So he pulled the whole, it's not you, it's me, I'm just falling for you too hard, I'm not a marriage type of person, blah, 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 and broke up with her. His performance involved big crocodile tears and professions of love, and he was reportedly angry that she didn't have the same reaction to him. Just a couple weeks after the breakup, Robin was also not around anymore. uh, Wayne first reported that she had gone off with some trucker and then changed his story to him putting her on a bus to go back home. And on Christmas Eve 1984, the body of a young woman was found in the area of Bonner Dam outside of Missoula, She was referred to as Debbie Deer Creek because the location she was found um, was the Deer Creek location. And she was not identified as Robin, whose real name was Marcella Bachman until over a year later. Maybe Robin was her middle name or something.
0: I think um, she had done some, like, sex work and things
1: like that. So she used Robin as a
0: pseudonym. Okay.
1: In September 1985, another body of a young woman was found in the wilderness surrounding Missoula. She had been shot twice and dumped in the creek about a year before her body was actually found. And detectives named this one Chrissy Crystal Creek. She, remi- she remained unidentified until 2021 when DNA confirmed that she was Janet Lucas from Spokane, Washington. So, Courtney, I'm noticing that Missoula police like to get, you know, kind of creative with their unidentified victims instead of, you know, Jane Doe number one and Jane Doe number two. They certainly did. And I think it,
0: you know, gives it a little more personality. I and like. too. It almost humanizes them as victims more than just, like, a body named Jane Doe.
1: Well, and it's also obvious where they were found when they named them like that so they can, you know, refer. Instead of having to look at your stuff, like, which one was Jane Doe to? Right. Exactly. They can be like,
0: oh, this was the girl down by Crystal Creek. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So a major part of Wayne's job at Conlin was to deliver and install furniture in people's homes. Unbeknownst to his delivery partner or boss, he would often copy down addresses he delivered to and make mental or hand-drawn maps of the layouts of the homes themselves. Mike and Teresa Shook had just moved into their newly built home in Hamilton, Montana and had their new living room furniture delivered from Conlin. Wayne was one of the delivery men. His partner noticed that Wayne seemed agitated after the delivery and called Mike an asshole, although he hadn't seen any offensive behavior. On December 12th, Mike and Teresa Shook, along with their three children, who were aged 7, 5, and two and a half, were getting ready for bed after dinner. They suddenly saw a light outside and a knock on the door, and before he could be stopped, Luke opened it and Wayne slipped in. He announced that he was Conan the, Bi- the Barbarian and only wanted money. He had a gun and a knife. Possibly by accident, Wayne shot Teresa in the ankle. Mike tried to fight Wayne off, but was overpowered, hit on the head and tied at the hands and feet and then stabbed in the chest. The children were put into their bedrooms and Megan was in the crib of her parents' room while Wayne forced Teresa to her bedroom at gunpoint. He then tied Teresa to the bed at the hands and feet, cut off her underwear and bra, sexually assaulted her and then stabbed her in the chest Wayne then ransacked the home, stealing a hunting knife and a small statue of an elk, before leaving. He returned about two hours later and attempted to set the house on fire by lighting furniture under the staircase. However, he mistakenly cut off the air supply in the space, so the furniture smoldered but never caught the rest of the house on fire. The bodies of Mike and Teresa and the children, who were still alive, although they suffered from the fumes and were unconscious, were discovered the next morning by a close friend who was going to drop off her son to be babysat by Teresa. The kids were taken to the hospital for treatment and were eventually adopted by their aunt and uncle. Courtney, do you think this is the first time he sexually assaulted his victim, or do you think he may have the others as well?
0: I think it's very likely that
1: sexual assault was
0: involved in the other murders as well. Um, Donna Pound was sexually assaulted, um, and, you know, by the time the bodies of Devana, Janet, and Robin were found, there was kind of little evidence left to analyze, mm-hmm. so it's unknown if they were sexually assaulted, but I would be surprised if they weren't.
1: Yeah, I'm back in the 80s, it was kind of tougher to tell, even, you know. Over the next nine months, there would be little movement in the investigation, with all the leads drying up. Wayne continued his daily life, working at Conlin's and giving more and more unwanted attention to the saleswoman on the floor. But his real fixation was on his manager, Chris Wells. He continued to give her compliments and gifts, and she didn't want them, and started carrying around a camera and taking multiple pictures of her and the other woman each day. He had a scrapbook, in fact, where he carefully glued pictures of Chris. Okay, I would be, like, super creeped out. By this guy. I don't know. She should have fired his ass. Um, Kept fragments of paper with her signature on them and wrote things like, Chris Zimmerman Wells, I love you. Wayne and Chris, I want you to live with me and my lazy boy, Wayne. What the F?
0: (laughs) Kind of his version of like teenage girls doodling like Mrs. John Smith on their notebooks. Oh my gosh,
1: am I lazy boy? That's funny. I mean, they did work out of furniture. It's store. true. I guess, yeah, you work with what you've got. Um, all right. The problem was that not only was Chris not interested in you know in Wayne at all, but she was married to a man named Doug. Wayne hated Doug and it was well known around the warehouse. And he would often be set off um, into a bad mood when Doug would stop by to have lunch with Chris. For Chris's birthday in August of 86, Wayne bought her or sorry, brought her a card and a turtle-shaped paperweight that she didn't want. Over the next couple of weeks, Wayne's co-workers reported that he started spiraling. He was more moody and angry and was just extra odd. On Wednesday, September 3rd, Wayne was asked to make an extra delivery that had been mistakenly put on the schedule for a day later than it was needed, and he was Really upset, and he refused when he asked, or when he was asked to do so. As a result, Chris, the manager, had to intervene and ordered him to just go and do it. He wasn't happy, but he did it, complaining to his delivery partner about not being appreciated at work. Poor Wayne. Uh, so later that night, on September third, Chris and Doug were arriving home after having dinner with friends at around ten thirty p.m. Doug heard a noise outside the garage and saw something moving in the bushes, and it was Wayne, and he stood up and claimed that he had seen something weird but needed a flashlight to see, and while Doug thought that it was weird that Wayne was there randomly, he invited him into the house for a flashlight. Wayne hit Doug over the head with a homemade club, and a struggle ensued, alerting Chris, who came downstairs from the bedroom to see what was happening. She saw her husband bleeding from the head and ran over to him. Wayne then pulled his pistol and stated that he just wanted money to get out of town. He pulled out some white rope and had Chris tie Doug's hand and feet, hands and feet. Chris told him where he could find some money and he got some from her purse. And then when she asked for something to stop Doug's bleeding, he threw her a towel. Wayne then tied Chris's hands in front of her. He walked around the house pacing and closing the blinds and then stated that he needed to separate the two of them He carried Chris upstairs to the bedroom where he tied her to the bed frame, then went back down and took Doug to the basement where he tied him to a post using more rope. He repeatedly went back and forth between the two rooms, talking to himself and acting weird and being panicked. Meanwhile, both Chris and Doug took advantage of his absences to work on loosening their ropes. On his next visit to Doug in the basement, Wayne stabbed him in the chest with a hunting knife. Convinced that Doug was incapacitated and probably going to die, he went back up to find that Chris had untied one of her hands and was using that hand to untie her feet. He retied her to the bed. Back in the basement, Doug had decided to fight like hell and had gotten loose from his ties, so that was with him stabbed and everything. He stumbled over his workbench and loaded a rifle with rounds that he'd made, then stood in wait for Wayne to come back down to the basement. When he saw Wayne's frame in the doorway, he shot, and a powerful bullet struck Wayne in the side, and he fell to the ground and started trying to crawl away. Doug started beating him with the stock of the gun, and they struggled up into the bedroom. Wayne was able to pull out his pistol again and shot Doug in the thigh, and when he aimed again, Doug swung his rifle and hit the gun, Wayne's gun, changing the direction and resulting in firing one bullet into Wayne's head. By this time, both Doug and Wayne were barely clinging to life, and Chris was able to get free and dial 911. So Chris survived with only minor injuries, but with significant emotional trauma. Doug suffered from a collapsed lung, severed diaphragm, and damage to his sciatic nerve. He required extensive physical therapy to learn to walk normally again, and he also struggled with PTSD. Wayne was pronounced dead at the hospital, with the lethal injury being the gunshot to his side. Um, he was 30 years old, and after his death, when police searched his belongings, they found evidence that connected him to several of the crimes committed in the area in the past 10 years. The gun and ropes connected him to the murder of Donna Pounds. There was hair and photos discovered that linked him to the murder of Marcella and Robin. They found the knife and statue he had stolen from the Shook house. They also found his creepy scrapbook and boxes full of pictures of women and mementos. In his bedroom, they saw that he had rope tied to his bed in the same way he bound others and that he slept on a green rubber sheet. Courtney, do you think he was binding himself like BT BTK oh my goodness. BTK do you think that the rubber sheet was maybe because he still wet the bed and that, you know, was the completion of the triad? What do you think is going on here? Do you have enough information on a possible diagnosis for this dude? So based on kind of the reports from the investigators
0: in this case, um, I don't think he was engaging in self-bondage the way BTK was, but more likely was just like testing out the different types of knots and ties um, to see which worked best. Mm -hmm. And he also may have used them during like consensual sexual encounters um, with women like Robin. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no evidence um, to support that Wayne struggled with incontinence as a child or an adult. Um, and the main theory at the time about the rubber sheet was that he used it for, quote, ritual sacrifices. Um, what with his participation in Satanism and the occult and all of that. I don't really know what to make of it, honestly. I doubt it was sacrifices, but I don't really know.
1: Ew.
0: Right. I mean, they were obsessed with the occult back in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, right? That satanic panic was mm-hmm. real. Um. And then as for diagnosis, you know, Wayne really strikes me as just a classic psychopath with antisocial personality disorder. You know, he had all the classic warning signs as a child, no empathy or remorse, cruelty to animals and people, fire starting, um, breaking rules at home and school, all of those things. And then as an adult, you know, he demonstrated lack of respect for authority, committed minor crimes... Um, Was underemployed for his intelligence and abilities, was angry and impulsive, and struggled a lot with social relationships. So I think this is one case where, at least with the information we have, it seems pretty clear-cut that he was just kind of born this way.
1: I mean, it doesn't sound like he had the greatest parents. You know, I mean, dad did commit armed robbery, Right. Mom must have had some sort of depression going on, if she did commit suicide. Sure, and, and mom
0: drank a lot, yeah. supposedly. And mom and dad would fight sometimes, mm-hmm. but
1: yeah, but you didn't find any evidence. I mean, you, there was no reported like evidence of sexual abuse or real physical abuse, no, nope, okay. nothing like that.
0: Yeah. And the fact that his cruelty started at such a young age, um, mm. I think, is is telling that it was
1: you know, something in his brain was just wired that way. So you think that there's a correlation if, okay, maybe correlation is not the right word. Um, If someone is born a psychopath, in your opinion, they will exhibit their traits much earlier than if someone is affected by trauma and then through the trauma develops possibly similar traits, but it might take longer for them to come out because they weren't born that way. Essentially, yes. Am I making sense?
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah, you would see the, the things very clearly from a young age.
1: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. So while uh, you know, Wayne was never, never officially charged or convicted of any crimes, Wayne Nance is accepted by local law enforcement as the person who killed Donna Pounds, Robin, Mike, and Teresa Shook. He is the only suspected identified um, person in the murders of Devonna Nelson and Janet Lucas, and he is the only only suspect in the attacks and break-ins of Dennis Tate and Janet Wicker. For many years, the murder of five-year-old Siobhan McGinnis in 1974 was also thought to have been him, but in 2020, DNA evidence proved that she was killed by a different serial killer. Lucky her. Man, you must have had a bunch at the same time in this area. At least two. Yeah. Um, Well, well, it's a small area. (laughs) It's kind of scary. Well, there you have it, a serial killer who was discovered after death. Unfortunately, because of this, we have little insight to the working of his brain because no psychological assessments or questionings occurred. And therefore, Courtney, what are your final thoughts?
0: As happy as I am that Wayne Nance was killed before he had a chance to murder murder any more people, um, I am a little disappointed that There just isn't a lot of information about him as a result, you know, and what we did learn from the book about him, um, again, that's to kill and kill again by, um, John Costin. It was pretty fascinating. And I just wish that I could know more about how his mind worked.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, he was young when he was killed. I mean, if he was only 30, if he had not been killed, you know, he could have racked up a a way bigger number. Mm-hmm. However, he kind of like um, BTK was hitting houses with multiple people at home, and that's just asking for trouble. I mean, right? So there was some of that. Yeah. And so he probably would have got caught mm-hmm. either way, right? If he had kept with that mo.
0: Eventually, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was operating the same time too as like Gary Ridgway, mm-hmm. um, and actually, um, Devana. Nelson they thought that possibly she was a victim of Gary Ridgeway because she was from
1: the Seattle area oh that totally makes
0: sense um but of course she was found in Montana yeah so
1: dun dun Mm -hmm. that was my law and order (laughs) noise okay well Courtney thanks for picking that one and I learned a lot along with you guys on this one if you couldn't tell I'm sorry if uh you know I, okay, I say I'm sorry too much, but I, I was learning while I was reading.
0: Yeah, this was the first one where, like, I wrote the summary. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it sounded a little bit different than normal, that's why. Um, but I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, um, I, I enjoyed it too. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> and if you all enjoyed it as much as we did, please let us know um, by reaching out to us on our social media. You know, you can find us on Instagram at addicted 2 podcast. On Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitter at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email at Addicted to
1: Murder Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Courtney. Um, I'm choosing the next one. And my clue is that this doucher was convicted of killing two children and was released only to become a serial killer. Whew. Mm Dun-dun. So, yeah, the next one's going to be really... um, It's a doozy. It's, yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.